This program is brought to you by P1 Australia Racing Components, the designer of the oil heat mats for dry sump tank applications. Find out more about the truths on engine oil heating at p1australia.com. Thunder Media. Hi, I'm Chas Mostert. Hi, I'm Shane Van Gisbergen. And you're listening to Inside Supercars. From the racetracks across Australia, and here's Inside Supercars. On this episode of Inside Supercars, we prepare for the mountain by speaking to Will Hagen, a man whose voice is no stranger to Mount Panorama. Dreadful to say it was better then. It couldn't have been because you didn't have as many cameras, you didn't have, as I say, the lap scoring and the instant information and so on. But equally today, I think there are certainly improvements that can be made. Will Hagen on the early days of Bathurst and beyond here on Inside Supercars. And it starts now. Earlier in the year, I had the chance to catch up with Will Hagen as we remembered the life of Keith Reagan, one of his early mentors and an early commentator in Australian motorsport in and around New South Wales predominantly. And we took the opportunity to speak about the broader Bathurst event, the commentary and television which he was involved with for so many years, and then diverted off into a world of other conversations in around motorsport commentary speedway this is a very different interview to the normal type that i do a bit of malcolm gladwell-esque it doesn't sit comfortably with me i think you will find some very interesting opinions and observations from will we started by talking about how Keith Regan's last visit to Mount Panorama coincided with when Will was receiving his induction into the Supercars Media Hall of Fame in 2012. You know, that was ba- built from the sort of basis that Keith Regan had given me right from the very start. And in fact, I was very lucky because. In the year that I started, 1965, allegedly Jeff Healy uh, was looking for somebody to help Channel 7 with their Bathurst commentary that year um, in October 65. And uh, as Mary Packard, who with John Stranger, with Jeff Sykes, two fully involved people in, in making Warwick Farm work and running the race meetings and all the rest of it, and as Mary Packard said later, Jeff Healy said to uh, to Jeff, so I need a commentator for uh, for this October Bathurst. Any idea? And allegedly, Jeff's response was, young Willie Hagen's been going all right, or <laughs> showing some promise or something. And I got a phone call from a guy, and, and Craig, think about this. Jeff Healy didn't just get the Channel 7 commentary going and the, and the, the whole production of uh, televising uh, that October meeting and had to 
uh, bounced the signal off. I think it was yet home, uh, a high point on the way back, Sydney. I mean, it was back in the days, we're talking 50, uh, more than 50 years ago, uh, it was very difficult just technically to get the signal going. But Jeff Healy was the guy in the world in television who started in-car cameras. And his people went to America to tell and to show the Yanks and to work at it to show the Yanks how to do it. And it started with Channel 7 through Jeff Healy in Sydney. And uh, he then really changed motorsport and its ability to capture the audience on television. In America, it was almost going to fall over from being a live television event. And then the in-car camera came to them and and it, it reawoke people's interest in it. Absolutely. Uh, it became a very important part. Mind you, I've got a theory now, and I can remember my days at Bathurst, we were talking of 30 and 40 cameras, and now it's more likely 230, 240. But then I can remember too, uh, on wet days at Bathurst, when gradually the cables got wet, and uh, on one occasion, for, for some while, we were down to one camera at Bathurst, uh, and they had no more cable. They just run out of it. But they've got so many cameras now that they're tight all the time on the cars. They can get up to the window and look at the driver and be in the car and all the rest of it. And to a degree, you're losing your sense of speed. I can remember watching a, a, a telecast from Spa-Francorchamps uh, some years ago, and there was a very high shot of two little dots down on this little ribbon of road after uh, Eau Rouge, that downhill left, right, and then out into the, the back blocks of uh, the Spa-Francorchamps circuit in uh, Belgium. And uh, you, the cars were just going so fast through uh, the trees or past the trees and everything along this straight section of road. And I think sometimes now they've got so many cameras that they don't pull back a little bit or stay fixed on a corner and just watch different cars come through on different lines and things like that, which they did in those days because they had no option. So it's, it has changed. But as I say, um, maintaining that perspective of speed and the different lines that drivers take and all the rest of it is a very important part of showing how the race is evolving and how the, riders, uh, the drivers and riders perform. I've been fascinated about Bathurst over the last 20 years. As a kid growing up, we had the the seven commentary, which you were involved with for a while. And we used to see you in more of a, a cricket style, having in, in those times a few hours rather than the radio broadcaster 20 minutes. But you might have had a, an hour, two hours in the box. And then you'd have some time to leave the box. Another team had come in and carry on where you had the opportunity to go out into the pits and firsthand speak to people and find out what's going on and get your breath back and then come back laden with that information to be able to communicate. I personally feel we've lost something by having that rotating commentary team that can. We see it with the cricket where they go out and they talk to different people, get different points of view and can bring that back to share across the course of the day's cricket. Yes, it's interesting the the way it's all evolved. Um, lots of people now, and uh, not necessarily people who've, you know, when they were 
teenagers or uh, and young teenagers uh, who somehow got their way to Mount Panorama or uh, to wherever because they were just madly keen on motorsport. What we're getting now, to a degree, I'm, I'm generalising here, and it's not always the case, but uh, is professional broadcasters who... Uh, probably don't have the DNA of motorsport and all that's involved and and how complex it is, um, you know, in their uh, in their their soul and, and, and the way that they see the world. So that can be uh, both good and bad because um, it's good to have some pullback balance and look at the thing and uh, to have you know, a, a more removed observer than somebody who's so passionate about it that they don't necessarily see it in a, in a broader context. So, look, it, it's a complex business, and this is one of the things that the media generally doesn't understand. We see it quite re- regularly with reporters uh, and sometimes with, well, mainly reporters, uh, whether they're writing or uh, or doing television news reports and things, and, oh, we've lost the rugby league or we're not doing the AFL or we're not doing the cricket or something. Hey, Fred, you go off to the uh, Formula One Grand Prix and do a report on it. And both the media outlet and the person working for them just thinks that motor racing is very simple. It is actually the most complex sport of all because you've got what the person does mentally and physically and then what the machine does and how they have to work with the machine and uh, and then what their, their crew do. And that's very different to somebody going out to bat in cricket or to kick a goal in football or to run a marathon or whatever. And uh, oftentimes these... Um, you know, oh, I'll go to the motor racing and do a report type person has no idea of the, as I say, the whole complexity of it. And and this is what the media is missing too, that they don't give motor racing the respect that it deserves and uh, that involves drivers and engineers and managers and everybody so fully to, uh, to come up with a, uh, you know, a good working result. Is what you watch on television now? as well put together and as professional as what you were part of back in those early 60s or mid-60s broadcasts? Well, in timekeeping and lap scoring and everything, it's way, way ahead, uh, obviously. I I remember, (laughs) this is a, a downside to, I did 11 Bathurst for Channel 7 and we did Rallycross and various other things. We did 1968, the end of the London to Sydney Marathon at Warwick Farm, we covered that. Uh, So we covered a broad range of events and we covered rallies as well and later with the ABC we covered Australian Championship motorcycle racing and Castrol six-hour races with both Channel 7 and later with the ABC. But uh, I can remember we'd go to air at Bathurst about five minutes before the race started and we were trying to get through a grid of 60 cars. And obviously, we should have been going to air much earlier, and I can remember rushing like hell and, you know, tailing off with very brief descriptions by the time we got to about lap uh, grid position 15 or 20. Um, I went to England in 75, and that was my last time with Channel 7, and... 
was invited back in 76, but I couldn't come back. I was still in England. And uh, Mike Raymond had been doing the highlights uh, back at Gore Hill um, and just making up a highlights package of the uh, of the event. And they got him in as commentator, and he was in there the next year when I came back. And I didn't get in. I don't think Mike Raymond wanted me. And I, that's an assumption. I don't know for sure. But what what happened was the first one I saw, so in 77, when I came back and wasn't working for Channel 7, they were going to air half an hour before the race started. And this was an innovation that I think Mike Raymond brought in, that, you know, he just wanted more build-up, more explanation, more presentation of the event before it started. And that was a very, very good move. Um, Evan Green and I and, and others that were involved did whatever we were told by Phil Berry, who was the director at the time. So I think, I think in some ways it was, it's dreadful to say it was better then. It couldn't have been because you didn't have as many cameras, you didn't have, as I say, the lap scoring and the instant information and so on. But equally today, I think there are certainly improvements that can be made. Even now, I, I look at MotoGP and, and World Superbikes, and we have pre-race, before the race start, we have interviews with people, and they don't match the picture. Well, the abiding rule in television is talk about what, what's on, what people are looking at, and then expand upon it. The other thing, too, that we get now, which is a downside of it, and people like Keith Regan would never have done it, and we get it in car racing and we get it in motorbike racing and they're looking at a grid and then down at the tail end of the field, somebody waves a green flag and they take away the red flag at the front and then they're, they're in the starter's hands. And the commentators tell us they've waved the green flag. Well, for God's sake, we can see that. <laughs> tell us what it means. 22 cars, the full field is in position for the start of this 22 lap race. Tell us something. Expand on it. Not telling us they've waved the green flag. And everybody says it. It's pathetic. It's just dreadful. You've got to expand on what people are seeing. You've got to tell them something about it, what it means. Now the drivers are, or the riders are getting tense because they're in the hands of the starter. Do some build-up. You know, and there's that sort of very lightweight stuff of, uh, as I say, describing what we can clearly see with our own eyes. Hang on. Tell us something about it, please. You're the informed person. We're there, your customers. I want to know more. Richie Benno had it worked out, didn't he, when he said, oh. uh, you just say things when you've got something to say and let the pitchers do the talking when you don't have anything to add. Absolutely. And he also, uh, two things, one that he understood pauses and one he understood not talking every second of the, of the thing, you know. Take a little bit of a break. Take three, four, five seconds. Um, whatever, just... And people are waiting while you're pausing. And, you know, and then you come in and they're, suddenly they're listening. And it works with circuit commentary too. Uh, as you say, Richie Benno understood it. When you've got something to tell them, do it. And if you've got nothing to say, shut up. <laughs> and, and, and directors too, you know. You wonder sometimes um, why they're not saying to people, I was just listening to some news stuff earlier today, and uh, the phrasing is just out of kimber. Um, you know, somebody said it's 220 kilometres to the border. 
Well, hang on, it's 220 kilometres to the border, is the proper emphasis. You know, but they, they put pauses in all the wrong places. And the other thing, too, is that pauses are underused. There was a, a lovely Irish comedian who used to do, he, did, he was on radio in Sydney at one stage, but he used to do a lot of corporate work as well. And I was a, lucky to be at a function on the Gold Coast uh, hosted by Ford. And there was a small number of people. And Brian Doyle was telling his, his jokes and everything. And he was absolutely sensational. Um, and his, his use of pauses. And uh, anyway, I mean, sometimes you knew the punchline of the joke, but in the way that he to told it and the way that he then paused before he delivered the punchline, you were laughing before you heard the punchline, which you already knew anyway. And I went up to him at the end of the thing and I said, oh, Brian, I said, that was fantastic. Thank you so much. And I said, and above all, your daring use of pauses. And he said, that is the essence of my, my work, of my comedy. And if you look at Barry Humphreys, he does the same. He builds up a story. He has a, when he's uh, Les Patterson, and he has a, a sip of a drink. And then he tells a little bit more. And then we're all waiting for the punchline. And he has a sip of the drink and his eyes flash around and he looks and this is all he's pausing and then he comes in with the punchline. And people don't understand it. They don't understand pauses. They want to gabble all the time and often too fast and often not joining their phrases up nicely. I was going to say uh, my training through the BBC manual when I was at Triple S was 22 words per 30 seconds. Now, that is, that is anachronous. It's certainly not the cadence that we speak with in today's society, but it is something that I, was drummed into me when I first started in radio. Well, and again, and it's well brought up, um, and I suspect these days that uh, a lot of the people doing it wouldn't have even looked at something like that, you know. I can think of an ABC person now who has a recorded thing saying what the program is, and he then comes on air and he says what, he, what the program is. Absolutely repeats what's just been said. You know, and you think, doesn't anybody produce this stuff and listen and, and so on? Back in your day, what you're talking about with uh, the BBC guides uh, being used in Sydney, you know, people thought about this and produced the stuff. But uh, today, in, in what's written as well, sub-editors have gone and producers, I suspect, with uh, the spoken word are gone, you know, or not nearly as, as involved. I can remember Jeff Purcell was a director, ABC director in Melbourne that we worked with at Sandown and Places. And sometimes I'd get in my earphones Talk about the picture. <laughs> and, you know, I doubt that anybody gets that these days in uh, a lot of sport reporting, but in motor racing particularly. Something else that's close to your heart, and I know you do like accuracy, so you must be uh, a little bit fuming when you're watching the World Speedway Grand Prix because they are fixated on this year being their 100th year of Speedway. And anyone who has access to Trove knows that the first Speedway motorcycle meeting happened in 1905 at Sandown. <laughs> yes, well, there were certainly earlier meetings, albeit that Motorcycling Australia and other outfits are, 
uh, celebrating that Maitland meeting in December 1923. It's been generally sort of accepted that that was when Speedway, as we know it now, started. But certainly, you're right, there were certainly meetings, uh, starting with that one at Sandown, but other meetings in America too, that could be described as Speedway. But, you know, I was watching the, 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 the French uh, round of the World Motorcycle Championships and the guy blithely said, oh, this place has got a long history. The first Grand Prix was held here in 1960-something. Now, hang on. He didn't define what sort of Grand Prix, motorcycle or car. He made no mention of the fact that the, the Le Mans uh, the first Le Mans 24-hour race was held in 1923 at this very place, you know, and it's just a, a flip, lazy, unresearched thing that tells people very little. Um, you, you've got to, as you're implying, Craig, you've got to tell them something that they don't know and that catches their attention. Oh, gee, I didn't know that. Gee, that's interesting, you know. And they're not doing that. They're just glibly going over what's in front of them. Again, I, I, I find it funny. I always used to do it when I was doing a, ABC radio for uh, both uh, Car and Bike World Championship Grand Prix, that you translate the number of laps to a, to a distance, kilometres, and nobody does that. Well, okay, it's not the most important thing in the world, but it's an extra bit of information. And uh, I don't think it hurts, you know, but um, I think people are, I think to a degree, Craig, and I'm asking your opinion on this, that it is so, the the, the motorsport coverage is so facilitated now by timekeeping, by the number of cameras, by everything else, that the commentators to a degree don't have to work quite so hard and do quite so much homework as once they had to do. do you, what do you think about that? I would suggest that some of the commentators are working as hard, if not harder, than previous generations of commentators. Some are, no question. And then there are others that perhaps don't even understand what the job is. And, <laughs> and that, is, that is the thing. You don't know what you don't know. And then there are some people who are just, they've got too much information and they can't get it out necessarily when they need yes. to. Now, I, uh, I certainly have not reached the heights of someone like yourself, but I'm a journeyman commentator, so it's probably not my place to say. But I would, I would say when I started calling kart races, and we had manual. And I was sitting next to the manual lap scorer, and mm. working out gaps by knowing various distances between markers mm. on the circuit. To now, when you sit in front of a commentary box at a kart race and have live timing and scoring, mm. when that timing and scoring goes out, it's very hard to go and uh, just pick up <laughs> the old skill. Yeah. And and I think that could be part of it as well. Well, there's another uh, uh, thing that you, you brought up in a sense too. And you get the occasional commentary thing of saying they're 40 metres apart. Well, what speed are they doing? You know, 
if it's near a hairpin, 40 metres is a long way. If it's down the straight, it's a very short distance in time. The only way, accurate way to describe a distance in motor racing where the speeds are varying is by time, not by distance. And, and people again say, oh, geez, closing under brakes. Hang on, what's the time gap? Not the distance gap. Of course, he'll close under brakes. He or she will close under brakes because they're going more, more slowly. But have they actually made any time? And what you're saying is some people don't understand it, and they don't understand that, and they take it as a simplistic thing. Geez, good under brakes. He's making time there. <laughs> <laughs> distance. Uh, when I talk distance, I'm talking about lengths. So if a, if we're talking about a car race yeah. or a, a cart race, and you don't have timing and you don't have the ability to uh, do the gap yourself, then yeah. the cars, you're three car lengths apart. You're yeah. two car lengths oh, apart yes. the next time at the same reference point. A a absolutely. That's, that's absolutely, the point yeah. of reference, yeah. um, and it's a constant. And a person who looks at it is actually seeing it themselves. So it's yeah. also a redundant method, but I was a radio broadcaster, so I use radio parlances which aren't as good for track commentary and uh, for television. Yes, and, and look, you, you work to your environment um, and, and what's expected and what's understood by your audience, but, uh, yeah. It's an interesting way that the, the sport has developed and we used to be exposed to a broader array of people. Now we the the industry has become much much more insular, and we don't get as many different voices, as many different styles of commentary mm. as what I experienced when I was growing up. Mm. And so that yeah. also has an impact. And I was fortunate; I had uh, trips overseas and was experiencing things in New Zealand and things in America at a young age as well. Mm. And, and so what got you involved, Craig? In commentary or in racing? Mm, well, both. Well, uh, I Ray, mean, there was a family Ray, thing there. Ray Revell uh, <laughs> passing yeah. it on to Howard Revell, who passed it on to Craig Revell, would yeah, be the yeah, obvious yeah. Uh, lineage there. However, um, to get me into commentary, I was working. Which some people would not realise of, you know, um, the Revell family name in Speedway and, and other motorsport was just gigantic. Yeah, well, I think in the 80s, in the mid-80s, if you didn't... I, I'm not sure if this was before Glenn and I started karting, but there was nine Ravels racing in motorsport. <laughs> you, had the, you had the Ray Ravel side, which was Ray Howard, and then yeah. you had the Orb side, which had even yeah, more. Yeah, Orb Ravel, that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, I got into radio through being the PR officer at the car club when I was 15 years old and a sports <laughs> station was starting in Canberra. And uh, my first program was the Cart Report, which was a 10-minute program on Canberra, the Canberra karting scene. Oh, it was 15 minutes, sorry, on the Canberra karting scene, which used to go to air every Thursdays. It, on Triple SFM, in between the changeover between the daytime horse racing uh, wrapping up and the evening race meeting starting, we used to have a, a, a bunch of 
access programs, as we called them, for other sporting bodies to get in there. Yeah. Yeah. And I had I worked with some wonderful people. There's a, a lady by the name of Rosemary Church who is a CNN anchor. Mm. She used to do a segment for my program called What's On In Carding, where we used to go through all the meetings in the state and uh, say where they were. And uh, she started at Triple S with myself. <laughs> uh, Craig Good Norenbergs, stuff. who uh, has worked all over the world, he and I did a sports a Sunday evening sports show together, a general right. general sports yeah. show. Yeah. yeah, so we're talking well, you back see, to you, the 1980s. Yeah. yeah, and you come from the guts of it, you see, um, that absorption that goes on when the family's involved and, you know, whether you were going to a meeting or sitting around a, a, a table listening to these people talk and things, you absorbed all this stuff and you understood how it all worked and what drove people and everything. And that's what's missing from some of the people these days. They don't have that background of uh, growing up with it and absorbing it from um, so much of what was their early life. I have also been lucky that I've done Australian rules, football, rugby league, soccer, baseball. I did a lot of baseball. I did 10 years of women's basketball. And they all require completely different skill sets to what motorsport does, but you can take them and yeah. massage them in. And, and what, I, what I found was AFL, you commentate AFL at the same speed and the game is the same speed as what women's basketball is. Yeah. I did a couple yeah. of men's basketball games. I could not keep up. The men's really? basketball yeah. game was so much quicker. And so in yeah. winter when I'm commentating AFL and then going into summer where I was doing women's basketball, it was just a natural flow. The game yeah. had that same sort of cadence. And then you jump in to do, and I only did two or three men's games in, in the time I was doing basketball and I was just out of my depth because yeah, yeah. Yeah, everything moved so much quicker and it, well, yeah, it's the yeah, same game yeah. it's the same skills that you're trying to communicate to the listener it's done at a pace where you actually have to drop phases in the play mm. to be timely in the you know in the score yeah interesting yeah it's a, a different way of doing things and it's I'm not saying that I'm good at it. I'm just saying I've done it for a long time. Yeah, yeah, it's good, yeah. Will, thank you very much for your time today. And thank you for your interest. Thanks, Craig. My thanks to Will Hagen. I hope you have a great weekend enjoying the Bathurst 1000, whether you're sitting on the mountain having a tinny or having a champagne in your lounge room to mark and the 60th anniversary of the Bathurst 1000. Until next time round, keep smiling and bye for now. Inside Supercars is produced by Thunder Media. Tune in next time for more or lock in the podcast on your iTunes or mobile device. Search Inside Supercars. The views expressed on Inside Supercars, including the panellists and guests, do not reflect the views of the network, Thunder Media or Sport Radio. Any publication or rebroadcast of the show without the expressed written permission of Thunder Media is strictly prohibited.